Hello everybody and welcome to today's uh, webinar. It should be a very interesting discussion that we're going to be having all about building back better in the UK and US. We're webcasting this session on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter channels and I'm sure multiple other social media as well. So he hello to everyone following us on there. Um, and if that's you, do tweet questions and comments via Centre Pro Policy using the hashtag, obviously hashtag build back better or join via Facebook Live as well. And also thank you for those of you who are on Zoom and you can ask questions via the Q&A function. I'll um, be trying to do my best to feed them in during the second part of the event. We have a packed out um, agenda today, but we also have a packed out agenda next week. So a quick plug for an event on the 20th of July. That will be an in conversation with Dambisa Moyo. So please do sign up and join us then as well. But today is all about building back better in the UK and US. That phrase is all the rage. But are these countries facing up to the challenge? Biden has presided over a record rescue package. But will his American jobs plan deliver on the hard and soft infrastructure required to secure long term prosperity and reduce inequality? Boris has delivered vaccines and a generous furlough scheme. But how can he deliver the investment needed to ensure levelling up isn't just the new big society, if anyone remembers that slogan, but it was a slogan and there was no substance. At CPP, we are committed to driving inclusive recovery with better adult education, public health, childcare, social care as key priorities if we want to achieve it. Can the UK and US manage to do this? Joining us for today's discussion are economist John Kay, Penny Aberwardner, NYC Commissioner and former Director of Girls and Women Integration. Heidi Binko, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Just Transition Fund. Sunder Ketvala, Director of British Future. Bruce Katz, Founding Director of the NOAC Metro Finance Lab at Drexel University in Philadelphia. They'll each be giving a four to five minute opening remark and then we'll be opening it up for a great discussion and Q&A. So, Without any further ado, I'd like to uh, open the floor virtually at least to uh, John Kay, please. Oh, you're on mute there, John. Right, I've been asked to look at macro aspects of, uh, of the present situation and present crisis. Uh, and to do that in four to five minutes, which is a fairly tough uh, brief to be given. So what I want to do is to raise three issues briefly, uh, which are issues you might not particularly have thought about, and uh, uh, then open things for discussion. Firstly, we all know that governments have, in the course of the last year, run unprecedented deficits. In Britain, we ran a deficit of um, 300 billion in the fiscal year ended last March. Uh, that's British figure, but the figures I'm giving are fairly typical of what's happened in advanced economies. That's an additional deficit compared with a normal figure of something like 250 billion pounds. What's less noticed is how much personal savings have increased in the course of the last year. And I think of everyone on this call engages in a bit of introspection, they can start to understand why their incomes have not been much affected, but their expenditure has been significantly reduced 
as a result of travel, uh, travel restrictions, hospitality being limited, etc. The result of that in Britain is there's what one, one might call excess savings, savings over and above the normal level you'd expect. The savings rate has risen from about 7% normally of national income to about 20%, with a result that there is something like 250 billion of what one might call excess savings in this world, which is not very different from that deficit. And that's not entirely a coincidence either. Most of that is held in short-term assets, uh, and there are two implications of that. One is that uh, how much of this money will people spend once the pandemic panic is over? And secondly, we've seen the effects of this, surprising effects on financial markets, uh, that stock markets have been strong. We've seen a great deal of speculation in a variety of new assets from cryptocurrencies to special purpose acquisition uh, companies. We've also had a great deal of, heard a great deal about inequality, often without people being not very specific about what it means. We're invited to talk about regional inequality, but I think we need to understand that regional equality, or that inequality is regional inequality, is primarily about towns versus cities rather than urban versus rural. The brief mentions Hartlepool, Chesham, uh, other cities, uh, other towns, which have been, as it were, left behind, and where the political complexion has a result changed quite markedly. Uh, the inequality is not so much between uh, town and country as between cities and towns. We've also seen, had a great deal about income inequality. What has happened there actually over the last 40, 50 years varies a lot by decade and by place, but what has conspicuously happened in Britain and the United States and to some degree everywhere is that the incomes at the very top of the top 1% have increased rapidly. That's mainly caused, if one drills down to, into the figures, by the growth of the financial sector and the, to my mind, closely associated explosion of top executive remuneration during the period. Which brings me quickly to my third uh, heading, which is the year of shareholder value. We might regard that as having been inaugurated by Milton Friedman's notorious 1970 article in the New York Times, uh, the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. And that became in large part a maxim for big business over that 50 year period. I've been looking particularly recently at the two most heavily regulated industries, which are pharmaceuticals and financial services, in both of which we have regulation which is extensive, intrusive, and not very effective in serving consumers and the wider public well. Uh, what has happened has been a steady erosion of values of people in these industries, which are indeed industries uh, that have immense capacity to provide public benefit, but which are not doing so. Although there's been an uptick in the contribution, at least to the pharmaceutical sector in the last year. But this has been overtaken in the business sector by a great deal of discussion of ESG issues, which in my mind is peripheral to the main concerns. Diversity and the environment are proper concerns, 
But what ought primarily to engage us is actually the value system which pervades business itself. And that is an issue which I believe we need to address uh, if we're to build back better. So let me summarize by saying, I think there are three headings I'd like us to discuss. One is the macroeconomic data in terms of deficits and savings data. The other second is what exactly we mean by inequality. And the third is how we develop a business sector that is better directed to achieving public purposes. Thank you. Thank you very much, John, for setting the scene so well there. Can I uh, move on to Penny now? <clears throat> yes. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Penny Abbey-Wardena, New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs, and I was asked to reflect on the existing collaboration initiatives um, between the U.S. and U.K. cities, but also how the local work works with the federal government and the role of women. So a lot in, in, our, in our four to five minutes. Um, when I think about the collaboration initiatives, I wanna think about what we were already doing pre-COVID, right? We're like in two different phases um, of what happened prior to this reality and how we're working forward. Um, but one of the key areas in which the US and UK cities work together is on climate. Um, in 2018, Mayor de Blasio announced that New York City would be the first major US city to divest $5 billion in pension funds from fossil fuels, um, our cl climate accountability focus. We then worked with Mayor Khan of London um, and C40 to launch the first uh, world's first cities divest invest forum. And this forum called on other cities around the world to divest their assets from fossil fuel companies and to reinvest those funds into green initiatives. Um, you know, that is one piece of the climate partnership that we have with UK cities. The other area is in mental health. Um, in fact, this was a perfect example. And this is really just as some background, um, I run the, the agency in New York City that's host to the largest diplomatic corps. And part of our uh, mandate over the last eight years has really been to figure out how can we accelerate impact on the ground by, by um, creating opportunities to exchange best practices. <clears throat> and London Thrive has really been one of the areas in which we were able to do it uh, very successfully. So pre-COVID, one in five New Yorkers <clears throat> experienced and acknowledged having a mental health disorder. Um, in 2015, we launched Thrive NYC, which is a comprehensive mental health initiative aimed at changing the way city government and its partners address community health needs and the way that we tackle the stigma around mental health treatment. Um, you know, Mayor Khan was actually in New York City in 2017 uh, or in 2016, and we were able to have a conversation about um, Thrive NYC with him. The following year, he launched uh, Thrive LDN um, to improve mental health and wellness of the more than 2 million Londoners who experience mental health issues. So there was um, a foundation in terms of how we were able to work together. Um, in the last, uh, a couple of years in 2018, um, my office launched what's called the Voluntary Local Review. And this has been this opportunity to take the sustainable development goals that the UN agreed to in 2015 and use it as a common framework and language from which we can exchange best practices beyond borders. And so this voluntary local review has really become a movement. We have over um, 250 cities and local governments now. We've seen an increase in engagement during this period of COVID, um, which speaks to the need of communities needing to, to, to connect um, substantively around the strategies that we as local governments are experiencing on the ground. Bristol, Liverpool are part of this um, 
voluntary local review. And I say this because, um, you know, the VLR uh, was created by my office during the Trump administration. We had a federal government for many years that didn't, that was abdicating its responsibility on a lot of issues, including climate change, migration, um, issues related to um, gender equity that we prioritized in New York City. But we knew that creating this voluntary local review couldn't be um, something separate, uh, something that wasn't done with national governments, with member states. And so we um, were able to launch the voluntary local review as a movement that allowed us to, to showcase the importance of what local government means in your community. And that's what COVID went and proved, right? Um, we had, we were the epicenter last spring and, you know, our national government essentially asked us to abdicate, um, you know, completely left us alone <laughs> in terms of the responsibilities of what uh, they needed to do. We had to create our own PPE. My office was securing donations from other foreign governments and it became such a difficult dynamic. But the Biden administration has come in during this vaccination period and we have now put 9 million doses in New Yorkers around the five boroughs. And it just shows the discrepancy between what it looks like when local governments can work with their national governments um, and when they can't. Um, and when we couldn't, we also showed the power of what local governments could achieve for its community. Um, and I just wanna conclude with saying so much of this, and we've always been very proud, more than 50% of New York City's leadership have been women. And that has directly impacted the policies that we have promoted and amplified and implemented over the last um, over the last eight years, including parental leave. Um, and we've had women leaders, our New York City Health Commissioner during when we went into COVID, um, Dr. Barbeau uh, was a pediatrician and that really influenced the kinds of policies that we were able uh, to promote. Um, I'm gonna conclude there because I have my timer here and I went over five minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Penny. Some really inspirational examples there of what's been happening in, in, in New York and, and other areas. And can I move on to Bruce now? No, thank, thank you. And I, I want to build on John's comments around inequality and Penny's comments around the federal-local relationship. Um, when, when President Biden talks about Build Back Better, what he's really saying is we are going to have a series of federal investments and directions to close the racial wealth gap, to close the spatial growth gap between the heartland and the coast, and to put the country on a climate-friendly course. And he started with this rescue plan, $1.9 trillion. But once you get past the investments in individual households, it's 84 programs, 19 agencies, multiple policy areas. Then they have a US Innovation and Competition Act, which is being negotiated in Congress, $250 billion around R&D, commercialization, workforce, human capital, et cetera. Then we have a jobs plan focused on transportation infrastructure, energy infrastructure, broadband, housing, schools. That's another perhaps $1 trillion. And then we end up with the American Families Plan, which is a new safety net. And so not surprisingly, what we have in the US is an intense focus on what the administration proposes and what they negotiate with the Congress. But at the end of the day, if any of this is gonna be successful, ultimately the national government will invest through block grants, through competitive grants, through tax incentives, through small business products. And at the end of the day, it's cities that will ultimately decide whether any of this is effective, efficient, equitable, and sustainable. Because 
there are so many programs and resources coming down from the national level, literally hundreds of separate programs, separate definitions, separate sequencing, um, separate entities that receive them. It's up to cities to ultimately organize themselves and braid and blend all these different sources uh, in the service of some broader objectives. So what's happening in the US right now, I think is really quite remarkable. There's still 95% of the media focus on what's happening in Washington. The remaining focus is beginning to say, well, what's actually happening in the real world on the ground, city X, city Y, metropolitan area, et cetera. Five things I think are going on. First, cities are organizing for success. They are setting up stimulus command centers inside governments. And government is not just general purpose government led by the mayor or the city council. It's our public authorities, the port, the airport, the transportation, the water sewer, the schools. I mean, government is as fragmented as anything uh, in the US. And then there's an outside game with the private and civic sector. Second, cities are beginning to set visions, multi-dimensional visions with actionable strategies uh, that cut across multiple kinds of activities. If you're gonna build back a distressed area of our cities, or if you actually are gonna to try to regenerate our central business districts, you're likely to hit innovation, infrastructure, small business, housing, workforce development, all of which are coming down in verticals. You're gonna to have to pull that together. So organizing for success, setting these visions, beginning to match local uses and federal sources. The real estate community always understands sources and uses. That's literally what's beginning to happen in the United States at the city level to bring some order out of this federalist chaos. Next, staging and sequencing. Since program X goes first and program Y comes later, and then there's another program that perhaps a recipient can apply for. It's a complicated multi-layered chess game as to how all this plays out. And in a way where it's not just government subsidy, but leveraging private and civic capital, because to John's point, there's an enormous amount of private capital out there right now looking for smart ways to invest. All of this leads to one last thing. The national government is gonna have to change how it operates. We're gonna need a different way for this compartmentalized, balkanized, fragmented set of agencies and programs to essentially a vertical system to meet the horizontal city that really seamlessly moves across these multiple dimensions. So yes, these are big goals, large amounts of resources, but federal government invests, cities design and deliver. I think that's what we're learning from this entire episode. Thank you very much, Bruce. That was very insightful on the role of on the role of cities and the crucial role they have to play. And can we turn to Heidi now, please? Sure. Thank you, Ben, and thank you all for for having me here today. Uh, to this morning, I want to talk about 
a little something different, but I, I want to build on the great comments of Bruce and Penny um, and really focus my comments this morning on how in the United States we're going to build back better in transitioning coal communities. So first, just a quick few words. Um, I created and run an organization called the Just Transition Fund in the United States. We are a philanthropic hybrid that's essentially designed to address the, the uh, lack of economic opportunity in transitioning coal communities. And that's, of course, places where either coal plants or coal mines have closed. Um, we work uh, in a variety of places. We're a national fund. And what we did is because there are so many uh, coal communities that are affected in the United States, we took a, I would say, a data-driven approach that's really rooted in equity to identify the places that are experiencing the most economic distress that also have the highest concentrations of historically marginalized or at-risk populations. A couple words about how we work. We feel very strongly at the Just Transition Fund that we are trying to help local leaders build inclusive and equitable, strong local economies. And so at the heart of what we do is not a top-down approach, but a bottom-up approach. We believe the most sustainable solutions are built from the ground up, and we're working to find those local leaders and make sure that they have the resources that they need to really scale their innovative economic and workforce development programs. Um, you know, in the United States, um, um, Bruce did a, a great job of talking about what the United States government, what the Biden administration is, is doing right now. And I'm really excited to say that there has been a, a renewed focus between this administration from the last on how we're going to help address the economic distress in transitioning coal communities. And so um, the Biden administration put forth an executive order on climate, as you all know, in January. In that executive order, it created an interagency working group that is now specifically tasked with looking at transitioning energy economies. And they are starting this summer with a host of listening sessions all around the country to try to understand what these communities need and, and what they can do. And just to build on a little bit about, about what Bruce was saying, you know, in at least in, in our country, and I'd imagine it's it's the same way in other places as well. But when you're talking about transitioning rural, or when you're talking about transitioning coal communities and energy communities, it is with coal, at least, it is primarily a rural problem. And the federal landscape is incredibly fragmented and, and complex. We've all, those communities have also suffered from decades of disinvestment. Um, and there's just a, an incredible need um, to try to bring um, I would say parity between the economic opportunity that we're seeing in our urban areas and the economic opportunity that we're seeing in rural areas. And if we want to talk about addressing the inequality and income equality in this country, and I would say it's it's probably the, the same in the, in the UK, we have to think about how we can offer more economic opportunity to those to those rural areas. It's part of the problem that we're in right now is there's been such a such a discrepancy. So um, you know we're excited to see the the actions that the administration has taken. I think the most important things are for the, the government to make sure that they're not only thinking about the people that are directly losing their jobs today, but because this is a problem that erodes the tax base to such a such a significant impact, um, impact in this in these communities, it's really thinking about 
how do we how do we diversify and strengthen rural communities that have have really suffered with persistent poverty and have really been left behind for for decades? And for us at the fund, one of the answers is really focusing on making sure that in every in each of these areas we support place based efforts and we focus our investments on a three legged stool, and that's focusing on on strategies to diversify the local economy, um, the right types of wraparound workforce uh, development strategies, and I would just want to really emphasize for our conversation today, really making sure we're thinking a lot about infrastructure, digital, social, right? There are a range of basic infrastructure needs. You know, Bruce mentioned broadband that these communities need in order to get ahead. And without having uh, access to those things like broadband, we're only seeing inequalities um, become become worse. So just a couple of items for, for thought uh, for the, the rest of the conversation. And, you know, if we are going to build back better, we need to make sure that we focus on rural economies and we need to make sure that this gets addressed at the federal level. Um, the second point that I would make is that we need to make sure that we are thinking about a range of sectors. I think when we think about climate change, oftentimes we think we go immediately to clean energy and there are a lot of different sectors, including the knowledge economy, manufacturing, tourism, sustainable ag that need investment in order to do this. And then finally, it's absolutely critical that we have coordination between the local and state and the federal level because this is such a massive problem. So I will um, end my comments there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heidi. Some really interesting points there on, on how we can create a just um, transition. And then finally, um, can I ask uh, Sunder, please, for his comments? Thank, thanks very much. And thanks for the invitation to join you and be part of this conversation about Build Back Better. British Future is a charity and a non-partisan think tank. It's interested in an inclusive shared society. It engages primarily with issues around identity, such as immigration, integration and race that can be polarizing and looks for common ground. So the links between the economic and the cultural identity agendas is part of, part of what we do. I'm gonna draw a few things from an exercise called Talk Together, which was the biggest public engagement exercise that's taken part in the UK on what unifies people, what divides them and what people want to happen next. And it happened during the pandemic and about 150,000 people contributed to that. Um, 500 or so people in sort of Zoom conversations uh, and so on and other people in, in, other, in other methods. Um, uh, just some top line thoughts about what we, what we heard. Um, in all of the tragedy of the pandemic, people had a very strong experience of social cohesion. And I think this is a somewhat distinct feature of the UK experience as compared to the US experience, because um, the UK, which has thought of itself as much more fractured, polarised and divided than it thought it was or that has ever been before and that it wants to be, and those things remain true, had a very strong experience of consensus. And in the US, I think the experience of ongoing partisan polarisation at a public as well as elite level cut across some of that. So in the UK, we had an unprecedented level of consensus for a society that thinks of itself as very divided on 95% of us agreeing with the initial lockdown, um, unanimous consent on government intervention in the economy and the furloughing scheme in the, you know, the importance of the National Health Service as a, as a as cherished national institution and symbol, but practically as well in a pandemic. And we've got a 95% consensus at the end on the value of vaccination and a vaccination norm. And that, that has been hard work. Um, you know, two thirds of people wanted the vaccine at Christmas uh, uh, and there were divisions by ethnic group and by social class, but it's got up to a 
percent norm through a lot of hard work and the importance of being invited to be part of something as well as having a general norm the specific invitation to people to engage was very important to getting this unprecedented 95 percent norm so you know a positive experience in in tragic times a very volatile experience as well trust in government surged and collapsed and came back and wobbled um, through different events and you know very specific local parochial political events and also the experience of how long this went on the UK of course has very very strong central government and very weak local government if you look in an Atlantic perspective but regional inequalities and unfairness has really surged between the north and the south when we were having a less national policy and went away when we were when we were having more of a national approach to to these issues um, of lockdown. So trust rose uh, and fell. The salience of rich poor divides bubbled up. And if you ask people, is the top concern for the UK public? It's not the top conversation in um, the UK political media discourse, but this is something of a shift, I think, maybe from the Brexit years in which these issues have been mixed up with identity issues. That is there probably still being undiscussed. We had a common experience, unequally experienced. And we had the rising salience of race, which was a transatlantic conversation, very much came into the UK from the US. And there was broad consensus on that among ethnic minority Britons, especially black Britons across our different ethnic groups. And that response to that really split the white British population according to their politics, their age and their level of education. And so if you were a young left-leaning person, you were part of a multi-ethnic coalition of your age group. And if you were older conservative voter, you were a bit skeptical about why we were having America's race debate in the United Kingdom. So that was the that was experienced as a more divisive debate. What does this mean for this conversation today? Shared motto or common agenda? I think on the whole, I would lean towards shared motto. We've got very different contexts here. We've got a centre left centrist government governing in a very polarised society. And we've got a right of centre government um, that can steal different clothes at different times culturally right, economically very centrist, perhaps in a society that is more polarised than it thought, but also has experienced itself as less polarised than it was saying. And so there are interesting opportunities and challenges in how to do that. But I would say very different political contexts, very different social contexts, similar policy challenges, especially at the city level, as we've been hearing. But we're using common language, some new language that's coming across the Atlantic, some old language that we shared, in it, but it has a different meaning, I think, especially on the identity and culture sides. Where we have a shared policy challenge, I think it's trying to it's trying to bridge this economic opportunity agenda and this cultural identity agenda so that they don't become at loggerheads and get in the way of the coalitions you need for the build back better agenda. I think integrating the politics of class and economic opportunity and race and discrimination and marginalization is really incredibly important. They will be different challenges in different parts of the US and the UK. And then my last thought about this build back better conversation is the public haven't been having it yet. They are very open to it. It's what they want. There's a feeling that we shouldn't go back to normal after the pandemic, we should do something different. But the public have been very much in the immediate question. Will the schools open? Are we going to wear masks? Who's distancing, not distancing? And so I think the policy conversation, the civic society conversation, the political conversation about what next is a long way ahead of where the public are because they've been experiencing the pandemic in the moment. There's an appetite for this conversation, but we shouldn't 
forget to go back and take people with us about what we feel the lessons have been and why they need a different policy response in the future. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sundar. It says in my notes here that I have to now summarise everything that's been said over the next few minutes. I don't think I can possibly um, do justice to all the great comments we've we've already had. But perhaps as, as chair, I can prompt a bit further uh, discussion around some of the points that have already been been made. I'm increasingly interested in the role that business has to play in, in, in Build Back Better, whether there is um, a groundswell of support amongst businesses as well that they have to really be part of it. Over here in the UK, the CBI seems to be pivoting increasingly to thinking about this in more and more serious ways. And there are other echoes across the rest of the business community to be part of this as well. I know John mentioned the, the role of business earlier on in his opening comments. Bruce mentioned that. And obviously, I'm sure, Penny, you, you, you've also had to um, negotiate with businesses in all of your, your respective roles. And I'm sure all of you have too. So just wondering if I could ask um, the, the panellists what they think about the role of business in all of this, whether business really is here to be part of the conversation and part of um, driving this improvement in um, all of our lives, hopefully, so that we, we don't go back to where we were before the pandemic. We can continue to improve, we grow, and we can reduce inequality at the same time. So I don't know who wants to take that one first. Maybe maybe if John takes it first. As, can, as, oh, sorry, go on. Hey, Ben, I could, I could jump in on that. Um, yes, just please. from New York City's perspective, um, the business community has been an incredibly important partner um, pre-COVID with the city. We did uh, quite a lot of initiatives with them that uh, delivered services and resources to our community. But given what happened um, in COVID and what I mentioned during the Trump administration, we had to partner with local businesses to create our own PPE, to create our own, um, you know, uh, sanitation, uh, you know, gels, et cetera. And so one of the things that we need to figure out and that um, our economic development corporation um, and much of City Hall is focused on is how do we bring businesses back? What is what is the new um, sort of not only work environment, but what, um, what role are they gonna be playing in not only, you know, helping us build back, but um, coming and staying and helping the city thrive. Um, and we have to do that in partnership with them. The mayor um, last summer launched a number of different task force focused on rebuilding. I happen to be on one that uh, is focused on racial justice and equity because that was um, an area that we saw our black and brown communities get hardest or hit hardest during the during the pandemic. So then how do we ensure that our policies in building back are focused on them? But a number of the different task force are sector-based, um, real estate, um, culture and media. And that has um, a very important representation of business and the active recognition of working with them in our building back strategy. And I'd be happy to, to take that question next if you if you don't mind me, me jumping in here. Yes, please. Um, yeah, no, I, I think in, in with respect to, to coal communities that the private sector communities and what, you know, philanthropy, where I come from, and the state government dwarfs all of us, right? So they, they need to be and they have to be essential partners in these, in these conversations. And there's a, a really, I think, uh, there's evidence of, of really interesting links between, um, you know, philanthropy sort of taking risks on projects, the federal government um, helping to, to scale up when concepts are proven, and then really the private sector coming in and really, um, you know, really scaling these, these programs in a, 
in a in a big way. Um, we are engaged in a lot of conversations with the private sector about what they can do and what they should help, what they should do to help transitioning communities. And there are a range of things, right? Um, from um, ideas like like remote work and thinking about what is um, what is in the best interest of these transitioning communities, but what is in the best interest that meets their business case and their triple bottom line, right? Um, hiring workers from these places, sourcing products from these places, sourcing their energy, clean energy from transitioning communities. There's a lot of really great projects that are going on right now that uh, where the private sector can engage. So, you know, bottom line is the the private sector is absolutely critical, and we need to think deeply about these private sector, private public sector partners in order to really address inequality and move the needle on these economic issues. Uh, let, let, let me intervene now and uh, return to what I said earlier, which is uh, it's obvious that business has to be engaged in the kind of building back better we, we, we want. But I'm concerned that an awful lot of this is about essentially superficial aspects, uh, um, corporate governance movement and the like. Uh, when I talk to people in asset management, I discover that there's a corporate governance department, which is largely independent of the actual investment uh, decisions. It's concerned with box ticking exercises, and there are a lot of business leaders who think they can meet the kind of decline in trust in business, which has happened and happened for very good reasons over the last half century by making speeches indicating how concerned they are about diversity and environmental issues. What it is about for me is recreating a business sector that is actually there to provide the goods and services which people want, rather than, the, than to enrich people who are at the top of these businesses. And I've talked, uh, because they're big and outstanding examples about pharmaceuticals and financial services. We've seen in pharmaceuticals with how much good that kind of business can do. And we've also seen how much damage it can do. And whether it does good or damages depends on the value system within the businesses themselves. The same is true in financial services, where we've had a steady erosion of the value system in which banks were traditionally there to serve communities and have in effect become there to serve the the, the, the traders and the people who run the banks concerned. These are the issues which we need to address. And we need to make quite clear that business leaders are not going to get away with uh, making speeches about how concerned they are about social issues, unless that has substantive impact on how they actually conduct their business. Yeah, ben, let me just build right on that because I think the pandemic unveiled uh, racial and ethnic disparities in the United States that are really quite profound. Um, the home ownership gap between blacks and whites in the United States are the same as in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. Um, black owned employer firms are only 2% of all employer firms where wealth is created, where growth occurs compared to 13% of the population. If, if we don't have a radical change in how we organize ecosystems around growing black business, expanding home ownership values, uh, including the financial sector, but also many other sectors of the economy. I think we're kidding ourselves. I mean, government investments alone are not sufficient 
to basically build back better from a market context and from a wealth building context. So I think there are early signs of innovative finance, um, which to some extent redress issues from not 50 years ago, but from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, an enormous amount of financial mischief. So I, I think this is a comeuppance for our societies. And we're beginning to see the organizing occur at the local level, but ultimately it has to infect, affect, inform, change, um, really how major corporations operate. Thank you so much for those comments, everybody. I wondered if I could also ask about uh, primarily Heidi, but also the rest of the panel as well. But I was really struck by some of your comments around the just transition and how you're supporting um, coal, coal communities and the extent to which we think that green is the answer to this build back better problem. You know, the, we hear constantly about the number of jobs that might be created, but also there might be some jobs that are lost as well as as you as you've mentioned. And to what extent is it the the silver bullet that's that's the the missing part of the build back better story to to lead us onto a promised land and and to what extent should we be um, slightly wary ab about all of those who think you know what it's green and that's the only way to go. Uh, ben, thank you so much for this question, and I feel like we we must have been um, you know communicating because I, I I'm asked to speak to this quite often, so it's it's really great that you you prompted this. Um, you know the it's it's interesting the. I think that there is a, um, a meme that people think that we're going to shut down on the coal in our country and we're just gonna turn on clean energy. And while clean energy is absolutely a piece of the puzzle in every place you go, it is not the only piece. And I think that that's what we have to really, really think carefully about. You know, Just, just like we wanna to try to diversify our financial portfolios, a, a local economy and a regional economy depends on it being diversified, right? So it's clean energy, as I was saying earlier, it's, 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 it's tourism, it's knowledge economy, it's manufacturing, it's, it's a range of different things, right? So um, clean energy is a very important piece, but is not the only piece. There is no silver bullet answer to these questions. A lot of my, um, one of actually my, my favorite grantees that I've worked with for, for probably the last 15 years likes to say, there's not there's no silver bullet, but there are a range of silver BBs, right? And I think he's, he's exactly right. Um, I, I think at least in, in the United States too, um, just another um, uh, comment or fact that I'll throw out is that uh, people always point to the fact that, oh, yes, but our country is creating so many uh, clean energy jobs. And, and that is true, but we are not creating clean energy jobs in the places where we are losing transitioning coal jobs, right? And then when you when you look at that and you ask why, it's because those places in those states typically lack the right policies um, and incentives at the at the local level, right? That is that is starting to change, but you know that's a discrepancy, and we need to we need to think about that. So um, really appreciate the comment. I just encourage everybody to to think it's critical piece, but not a silver bullet. Thanks so much, Heidi. Does anyone else want to come in on that question at all before we move on? I would, I would just say that if you look at transitions in the past in the United States or elsewhere, there's a great book about the UK mm -hmm. Industrial Revolution, the Institutional Revolution. What, what generally happens during these periods are, are new kinds of public or public-private entities are created to manage the transition. 
Um, so in the United States, that happened in the 1950s after the Second World War. We built essentially all of our public authorities to build our cities at that time to basically adjust to a car-centered uh, travel system. Um, you know, a lot of wreckage from that, but, but it got done because we created institutions to deliver it. I don't think we really have the institutions at the local and metropolitan scale, rural state scale, to deliver a, a, a clean energy transition or a, br a broader climate-friendly economy that can take into account all the disruption that's going to occur. So I think we're beginning to see out of Northern Europe, other places, the creation of new kinds of institutions and intermediaries to manage this transition. Um, we tend to focus on the investments that the national government makes or the rules they prescribe and promulgate. I think actually it's institutions and intermediaries uh, that, that, that will def, you know, define whether this is a just transition or, or a transition that actually um, exacerbates inequities. Thanks so much, Bruce. Uh, Sunda, did you want to come in on this as well? Yes, just a, a, a little cautionary note. Um, so climate and the environment are the issue that lost most salience in the UK in the, in the last year to 18 months, even though they're gaining an elite level of salience and a policy level of salience that will be very important. It's partly because the salience was unusually high on the eve of the pandemic, and it's mainly just a pure crowding out effect. The pandemic, Brexit was still there. Um, that's deflating slowly, but Brexit health, pandemic, economy was everything. And so I think there's actually a big gap in British politics and policy and society of what are we going to talk about next? And actually climate will probably fill it. And we have, um, we have a surprisingly broad consensus, again, on this issue that we wouldn't expect if we looked at UK attitudes 15 or 20 years ago, we'd expect to see a sort of cultural and political polarisation. We haven't got it. It's not impossible you might get it from left or right, but it's very thin. There's a polarization of the elites. So there's actually a very broad consensus um, there among the public. But that consensus, I think, is very um, is very thin, except among younger people, because people haven't really heard this argument yet um, in any detail. So they're intrigued by it, open to it, would like to know about the links between climate and the economy. But I think, again, for the sort of policy main class who think we've, you know, we've really surged through with this, it's just been out of sight and out of mind for the last 18 months for most people, unless you're a young person that's very energized and engaged with it. This year's a great chance to put it on the agenda and there'll be a lot of space for that, I think. Brilliant, thanks, Sunder. And obviously there's the COP, all the COP26 stuff to come later this year. So hopefully that will, will do ex exactly that. And, and my, my, my final question um, as chair, if I may, is, is uh, priorities to Penny, but others as well. And, and it's also partly linked to some work we're doing at the CPP at the moment on women in the labour market. But you know, clearly women have been harder hit as a, as a result of the pandemic. I mean, in the UK, we've seen more women on the furlough scheme, for, for instance, and obviously really real challenges with childcare. And I know there have been even bigger issues in the, in the States. And this comes after you know quite a few decades of progress in terms of narrowing the the, the employment gap and pay gap between between men and men and women. And how does how does Build Back Better relate to um, women in the labour market, women in, in in work? And I was obviously struck by your paternity leave um, example earlier on. And what can cities do about it? 
Oh, I think we might have lost Penny actually. I don't know if anyone else wants to, to pick up on that one at all, or we could wait for, for Penny to return and move on. Okay, I think we've lost we've lost Penny for now. And um, we've got a question on the chat, which um, I think is for um, Heidi, which is around um, the role in supporting rural communities. And they say presumably the the increasing opportunities for remote working can be part of the solution. Is there any more <laughs> of this providing an outlet in that sense? Uh, yeah, and Ben, thank you for thank you for the the opportunity to, to speak to this, and and thank you for the the question in the chat. Um, yes, to the remote work piece, and it's actually quite exciting. We at the fund have been investing in a and I would say a pilot experiment for the last number of years um, in West Virginia to do exactly this, right? To um, to help uh, people that to, to help basically people in West Virginia connect with employers both around the state and from outside places. I think when people think about remote work, I think they don't necessarily realize that there are two different types of opportunities. One in which a state or a locality can try to provide incentives for people to come and live there and work from there. And another one to the other way to think about it is for the people that are already living in that state if you have more opportunities and more connections to companies that are not based there, mm -hmm. what types of op remote, remote opportunities does that bring up? And that can do a lot to help stimulate entrepreneurship, you know, do more um, workforce development. There's a range, of, a range of opportunities there. So I would say, yes, um, it's definitely part of, the, part of the debate and it's part of the debate um, deep in Appalachia, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, again, depends on a stable um, and secure um, and affordable and accessible broadband access. So again, getting back to the infrastructure being really critical, but um, you know, we're seeing companies from tech sector companies to, to you know, for folks working on, you know, on other selling of goods being really interested in this approach. And we're starting to see state and federal officials start to think more creatively about incentives at both the state and federal level to address this. So uh, appreciate the question. It's absolutely part of the debate. Ben, on the other question on gender inequality, I responded to it in the chat. I, there's an overlap between racial and gender inequality in the United States. If you look at where Black-owned businesses are concentrated, for example, they tend to be in childcare and they tend to be in home health care. I mean, large proportions of businesses in those two sectors that pay limited wages um, have very little growth potential have low revenue and payrolls. And um, part of really what President Biden's American Families Plan is about, though it's not the first or second or even fifth thing mentioned, is to really professionalize those sectors and elevate quality delivery and elevate wage standards. And, I, and so this is a complicated set of issues, but we've allowed for certain sectors of our economy to, to evolve over time. Um, where we, we really have, again, deepened inequities, um, race and gender, without quite understanding that, that those were the implications. Thanks so much, Bruce. I wondered if I could ask a, a question for Sunder, um, and it's about the kind of the, the build back better framing. Do you think that 
resonates at all with with the public? Is that something that we should continue to to talk about in order to justify um, investments in some of the things that we think are necessary? And and if so, what what might those investments look like that could be popular with with people and, and pull people together rather than divide us? I think I think like all slogans and mottos, um, the you know the people using it are probably pretty bored by how often they've been using it and everyone now uses it perhaps to mean different things you know the the green party and boris johnson and the labor party will all be using it and the smp government in scotland um many people won't really have heard of it yet um or got it the the idea behind it is very much where people are i think at one level there is um there is a hope that as well as the pain of the pandemic there are gains in the connections we've had that we should hold on to and there are problems and tensions that have been highlighted that we should address and so there's an appetite to not go back to normal back to the old status quo and then there's just a, a big question mark about whether that will happen or not about a third of the society is pretty hopeful it will about a third of the society says it won't because you know the same people are in charge and so on so there's a there's an appetite for it and a skepticism about it and I just wonder before we rush to the the detailed policy agenda that is the solution which I'm sure people will want the constructive plans that deliver it just to take people more on a journey of articulating what they do think will change it's very easy I think to get post-pandemic fatigue and to say your cohesion that was a crisis effect don't think you get to keep that and the truth is you don't get to keep it unless you work for it and organise for it and bring it in. So I think there is a danger that the policy classes don't take the public with them on this, on this, what needs to change and how do we actually turn aspiration into reality. Brilliant. Thank you, Sunder. And we don't have very long left, but I wonder if in our final minutes, each of the panellists could give a few reflections on reasons to be optimistic. We face huge challenges in terms of recovering from from COVID first, but then also ensuring that we don't face secular stagnation, while also maintaining the fact that we shouldn't hopefully face um, inflation in the next um, in the next five years as well. So there's a huge number of issues and risks and challenges that we that we face both in the UK and the US and across the world. Um, can you give us a couple of reasons why we could be uh, and should be optimistic that we are going to be able to build back better in, in the future? So if we could go via, via the, the panel, as we did at the beginning, with uh, starting with, with John, please. Reasons to be optimistic. Mostly they come from technology. That it's technology that is going to be the answer to the climate issues which have concerned people so much in this discussion. Uh, new forms of clean energy, and much greater ability to store and transmit electricity. That's an aspect of what is a much larger change, which is that in the last half century have a big increases in technologically driven increases in productivity have come from the application of information technology. And they've been within the information technology sector itself. But we're already seeing how um, information technology can transform businesses that have nothing directly to do with information technologies. Healthcare and vehicles, for example, are very conspicuous instances at the moment of that happening. I think that will happen over the next two decades in a whole range of areas where we have not yet imagined uh, the impact 
into the application of information technology power. It's the way in which electricity uh, 150 years ago, first of all, transformed a few things directly related to power, but no one had ever imagined that it would enable us ultimately, not only to vacuum cleaners in our house, but computers, not only in our offices, but in our houses. That transformational impact of technology over the long run can't be overestimated. Thanks, John. I think we've lost um, Penny, I'm afraid, but uh, what about Bruce? If we could come to you, that'd be great. Uh, very quickly, I, I think what makes me positive is that um, at the end of the day, the United States, not the UK, but the US, is a federalist republic. Uh, not a federalist republic, it's a localist republic. Um, if you go to our major cities and metros and beyond, public, private, civic, university, hospital, labor, environmental, all basically collaborating to compete, collaborating to innovate, collaborating to problem solve. We already are seeing places innovate in ways today, whether it's the Buffalo East Side Initiative or the Philly Equity Alliance or the Tulsa Authority on Economic Opportunity that I guarantee in three or five years will become the norm and the model across the country and actually will reverse engineer federal policy. Um, so it, when, it, when it comes to ground, it actually lives and has impact. So bottom-up problem solving is a 21st century phenomenon. Um, and I think, it's, I think that's a reason to be very, very positive. Thank you. Heidi. Yeah, just, just to echo what, what Bruce said, um, I'm very optimistic. Um, and I think for, for me, it starts with a focus on people in place that we haven't seen before. Um, this administration right out of the gate uh, has been doing um, a lot to, uh, you know, put forward solutions to, you know, address, address COVID, create more economic opportunity in these places, start to think about the problems of, of the energy transition. They are committed, they are working fast. And I think to Bruce's point, um, a change that makes me very excited is that they have really recognized the importance of place in, in building up and building back. And they have really recognized the importance of listening to the people who are most affected by the problem. And that is listening to local leaders. And so again, that's, uh, that's a change that makes me, uh, that makes me uh, excited and hopeful. And you know, we've seen other initiatives like the Justice 40, which is, is fantastic. So a lot of good uh, ideas and new programs coming out of the Biden administration. They give me hope. Brilliant, thank you. And last but by no means least, Sunder. I think, look, the reason to be optimistic if you're interested in change is simply, if not now, when? If you're interested in change, these are the kaleidoscoping shifting moments when you can, when the boundaries can be, can be different. And so if you do miss an opportunity like this, it probably won't return. I mean, rationally, a lot of it gets harder, um, I think, around the exacerbation of inequalities and especially the impacts on young people and the disruption to education. So we'll be dealing with a lot for a long time, but potentially the public permission is higher if you can harness it. And the, the linked point is that we are more divided than we want, but actually we are less divided than we thought. And there's an interest in maintaining that and not going back to a level of division that people feel is over-amplified. It's real, but it's over-amplified by the media and the politicians and by social media. And we want something different. So that's what we want. We've got to turn up and be part of it. But if not now, when? Brilliant. Thank you. Great reasons to be cheerful from all of you. Thank you very much. And what a great note to end today on. Uh, before we leave, just a quick reminder 
to sign up to CPP's newsletter to get our events updates if you haven't already. Um, we have very exciting events coming up um, in the future as ever. And uh, just to say see you all soon. And thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you.